Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. I wanted to give a quick update on the status of our sermon podcast. As we move from the separate campuses model back to a single unified church, we will be discontinuing separate podcasts for downtown, South Loop, and Wicker Park. Starting in August, we will be retiring the South Loop and Wicker Park podcasts and we will rebrand the downtown podcast as the primary Church of the Beloved sermon podcast. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with our sermons each week. You can find the podcast on most podcast platforms, and there's also a link on our website at cotb.life messages. God bless and have a great week. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Church of the Beloved. My name is Abe. I'm the pastor here. Um, it's Independence Day, 4th of July. It's the day that Americans commemorate a declaration of independence from King George of Britain. This 1776, a little history lesson. Let me tell you, today's service, it, it really doesn't consider this day at all. Our independence from sin was proclaimed by Christ's death and resurrection on Easter. We're citizens of, of heaven, and we honor that day in this embassy. But, you know, we do live in this world, in this place, and we do consider the, the ideals that were proclaimed as part of that declaration. If you ever hear it, you know, it does have some beautiful words. All are created equal. All are endowed with, by our creator with the right to live, the right to liberty, the right to pursue joy. Though it... The original writers of that declaration, they happen to not take into consideration that all really has to include everyone, uh, regardless of gender, hue, you know, women, indigenous, black, brown, yellow. That wasn't a thing for them, so we acknowledge that. But it is a day that we can celebrate the freedoms that we do have now, as well as consider those freedoms that we have to move towards as a church, as a world, as a as people. It's also a day for us to eat hamburgers and maybe light some fireworks if you want to. Um, but it's the 4th of July, so happy 4th to everyone. Um, if today's your first time with us virtually, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, text COTB to 97000, or you can go to cotb.life, and there you can tap the connect with us button, because that's what we'd like to do. We'd like to connect with you. If you're a first-timer here, we'd love to connect with you as well. So after service, we're going to all be marching together to uh, Nando's for lunch and to celebrate with Gabor and Liv. We're going to pray for them at the end of service, so I hope you'll join us then. Um, And we get to celebrate communion today together as well. So again, if you're online, if you could have the bread and the cup ready to join us at the end of the message. If you're here in person, the elements were being passed out to you as you're walking in. They're hermetically sealed and safe. Uh, If you haven't gotten one, just wave down uh, one of the folks in the welcome team. They'll be happy to pass that along to you. Okay. But before we get into today's message, I'm going to ask if you would, I'd like to start with prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we are gathered together because you've called us to do just that, to come together as a body of believers redeemed by the sacrifice of your, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we might be called your beloved children, God. 
And we come together to rejoice in the understanding that it is by Christ alone that we can call ourselves the beloved of God. So we come to give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory, God. And now I ask that the words of my mouth be a conduit of your truth alone, God. May this time be enlightening to your beloved and be satisfying to you, God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So today we wrap up Paul's epistle of joy. We've spent the last 12 weeks or so looking at what Paul was intentionally reminding the Christians in Philippi and as well reminding us, the entire body of Christ today, reminding us of how we can find Jesus' joy and make it a part of our lives I want to take just a moment to highlight and consider what it is that we were talking about over these last 12 weeks, this journey through this epistle of joy. In the very first week, we presented the uh, joy formula. First, love Jesus, then others next, and that will equal your joy. And then Paul, the author of this epistle, because he was living this out, he loved Jesus first. So as a result, The gospel was elevated, his sisters and his brothers were encouraged, and he was ultimately eclipsed. Paul, in this epistle, points out that joy for him and for us comes when we strive together for the gospel, when we walk side by side, grab onto each other and say, you know what, I've been through this before, I know the way out, let's grow in our faith together. The second chapter of Philippians, uh, we're reminded that Christian humility, it results from a Christ mentality that leads to a Christ-like ecstasy or joy. And we also are called to work out our faith so that we can shine bright like a diamond. Or in other words, in Gen Z vernacular, be salty and lit, fam. Paul also reminds us that we are, we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. And, and through the amazing and, and gracious work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are now citizens of heaven. Heaven is our homeland. And this place, this church, this is our local embassy in a foreign land. And this place, this church is an embassy where we can feel at home, where, we're, where we can return to our our natural state, practice our heavenly culture. And then finally, in chapter 4, this epistle of joy points out how we can find joy, how we can rejoice if we reconcile, if we're reasonable, and if we rely on God, and ultimately that what we've learned, we have to live. And that's a lot, you know, over the last 12 weeks that we've covered. And there's, the thing is, there's so much more in this epistle But today, we end our study of this epistle of joy as a church, but you guys can continue doing it on your own. There's a lot in there. But next week, we're going to start a new sermon series. We're going to go old school. We're going to spend time looking at the 12, what's called the minor prophets. We're looking at Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And we're going to spend one Sunday for each prophet, understanding how God used them to ultimately point us to Christ while simultaneously speaking to the Israelites in their context. That's next week. That starts next week. Today, what I want to do is I want to exegete, which is just a fancy word for 
take a deeper look at. I want to exegete this last chapter. And in it, I think there are two lessons that I want to focus on. The first one is, is a pretty simple one. And you might think why. But simply, be careful how you thank people. That's the first thing I want to point out. Because have you ever had uh, somebody give you a backhanded thank you or a, a compliment? Like, wow, you look great from far away. Or congratulations, I didn't think you could do that. Or those pants look so much better on you. Basically, you, it almost sounds like a compliment, but it's kind of not. And Paul realizes in verse 10 that his comment could be received that way. He says, I was so glad because now you're worried about me. He says here, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. See, Paul is really grateful, and he wants to take the time to clarify his point in that second half of verse 10 when he says, you were, you were in fact concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. See, Paul knew that the Philippians cared about him. They just didn't have the means. They didn't have a chance to show that care or concern. So if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there is a story there. Uh, he's speaking, Paul is speaking about the Macedonians, Macedonia included uh, the Philippians because Philippi was in Macedonia. But Paul wrote this. He said, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. See, the eagerness was there. Paul understood that. The means weren't. I mention this because I think that, as, especially as Christians, we need to take care when it comes to how we receive gifts. As we seek maturity in our faith, as we continue to allow the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have to allow wisdom and discernment to drive our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. I, I, I can't just think about and consider how I feel, but I have to consider how I might be heard, how I might be perceived, how my words and actions might be taken. For example, in verse 11, he says this, I don't say this out of need because he doesn't want the reader or the listener to misunderstand. He's not in it for the love of money or things that drive him the gifts that the Philippians are giving him. Verse 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift. Again, pointing out, it wasn't about that. See, Paul wants to make it abundantly clear his motivation is not the material, it's the ethereal. His hope is not in cash, it's in Christ. His source of joy and contentment is in his faith, in his love for Jesus. And so Paul uses a lot of care in the words he uses to thank the people of Philippi so they don't misunderstand. You know, one of the unexpected aspects of my job here as a pastor of Church of the Beloved is being a reference I've ended up writing a number of references for individuals trying to get a, a new job, new volunteer opportunity, maybe going to seminary. And so the pastor title really seems to be something that helps when it, come, when it comes attached to a letter. And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, I really love doing it. The, the one time, nah, no, I'm kidding. I, I actually really do find joy in, it's a pleasure to be able to share about the amazing things that I know about my sisters and my brothers in Christ here at the Church of the Beloved. But there was one person um, in our church that I recently wrote a recommendation for. 
and they gave me a thank you gift. And I'll be honest, I had a moment of crisis. Because there was a part of me, especially with everything that's been going on, with church leaders being accused of spiritual abuse or manipulation, there was a part of me that received that gift and started thinking, did this person think that I was doing this, providing this reference because I expected something back from them? Did, did, did I somehow broadcast that assumption? Because I was truly writing the recommendation out of a desire to help, not out of a presumption of, of, of payment. And so in my mind, I was like, I need to return this gift. I can't accept it. It's so inappropriate. It's wrong. It's going to be misconstrued. And then I took a breath, and I put myself in that person's shoes. And I realized, you know what? They're just happy. They got a job. And they just wanted to thank me. There was no hidden meaning, no agenda to the gift. It was just a gift. And I began to realize, like Paul wrote in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. My job was to say thank you for the thank you. Thank you well so that by blessing, I want to let that person bless me as I've blessed them that they might find joy in the opportunity of thanking me uh, and supporting me, that they might increase their account in heaven. The first lesson that I gleaned from the passage today is, is simple. Appreciate the gifts given to you by those around you. Use wisdom in knowing how to say thank you. On the flip side of this, I want to encourage you to allow others to find joy by serving you. There's nothing to be thankful if you never allow others to love you, to support you, to do things for you. I could give more examples of how I've applied or misapplied these lessons, you know, saying, you know, especially when it comes to saying thank you well for a gift or letting others serve me. But I don't think I need to. I think the point is pretty straightforward. What I want to do, though, is take a little bit of a tangent from what was read today in the passage. And I want to focus on verses 14 to 17 because there's something that we can see here. It's not necessarily a takeaway lesson, but there's a truth here that we as a church have decided to apply. I want to share that with you. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible version starting with verse 14. It says this, Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Now, one of the things I've done uh, as the interim senior pastor is ask that the board of directors consider a change to how we do missions at the Church of the Beloved. Uh, and not to disparage at all, but in the past, much of our missionary efforts uh, outside of the U.S. focused on short-term teams versus long-term partnerships with missionaries. So what I'm hoping to do is something similar to what the Philippian church did in support of Paul. So to that end, the board has approved a new policy regarding how we are going to be supporting members of our church who are called to serve in the mission field 
through an established sending organization. If a covenant member of beloved of our beloved family feels that they are being called to serve an unreached people group in a foreign land, and they obey that call to go, we as a church are going to walk, commit to walking alongside that sister or that brother and partner with them in their hardship, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. See, the thing is, the financial part for most missionaries is the hardest part, but it's the one area that we as a church is probably going to be the easiest. So for our beloved members called to serve as missionaries, we are committing to cover 50% of their annual budget while they're serving overseas. That means that our beloved family members who are called to go and who obey that call, they're going to be able to focus more of their energy on going versus fundraising. They'll still need to, to grow their prayer support, their other support base, because it's, it's a good thing to have. But we're just making it a little bit easier for them. I'll tell you that we're going to share more about that, the, the board of directors will, during our congregational meeting in a couple weeks. So hopefully you can join us there and hear more. But I'll tell you this, we're putting that change into practice right away. The first one that we get to support, the first missionary that, that will be going from within our midst with this new support model in place, her name is Caitlin Damer. I don't believe she's here. I can't tell. I, 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 and she's going to serve an unreached people group called the Tarahumara. She'll be going as a medical missionary in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Chihuahua. Uh, if, I don't think she's here because I think she's preparing to go to missionary boot camp in Colorado. So that, uh, and she'll be back in the fall. And she'll be sharing a bit about what it is she'll be doing. Uh, and we'll be able to pray for her, commission her as she goes off like we did for Pastor Otua last week. Because we want to be able to, to, to have Caitlin say to us that we did well by partnering with her in her hardship, in her ministry, in her mission, and in her joy. So I wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, let's go back to the passage. First lesson, like I said, simply learn how to say thank you well. I, I know it seems like a simple thing, um, but I think it's valuable for you to be able to put into practice. The second one, this is the more important one, this is the bigger one for today's passage, is simply this. Learn how to be content. The second half of verse 11 says this. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. And I have to say, I love Paul's intentionalness when it comes to the words he uses. He says, I have learned. In other words, he wasn't born with this. It's not something that he was already gifted. He didn't automatically have peace when he accepted Christ as his Savior. He had to learn how to be content. And maybe that means that, Paul, well, I think that means that Paul used to not have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding in him. Maybe Paul used to get anxious. Maybe he used to worry. Maybe he used to pace back and forth in his one-room apartment trying to figure out how he was going to get by. How was he going to make it work? Maybe he used to freak out when things didn't go as planned, or maybe he had to curl up in a ball just rocking back and forth trying to console himself. I don't know what it looked like when it went to not having peace, but I can tell you this. There was a time when Paul did not know how to be content in the promise of Christ. And he had to learn 
how to be content. See, if you're in a place where this type of contentment is a lofty idea, uh, an impractical goal, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't have to be a lofty idea or it doesn't have to be an impractical goal. I'm here to say that you can also learn to have that same contentment. You can learn to be content like Paul was in any and in every situation. Verse 12, it says this, I know how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Not, not only is the contentment, not only is having the peace of God deep within me, not only is that something we learn, it is something that is so pervasive. It's pervasive in our very being during good and bad times. I know how to make do with a little and a lot. I've learned how to be satisfied when I'm full and when I'm hungry. I'm okay whether I'm financially stable or I don't have a job. I'll tell you that the pandemic that thankfully we're starting to come out of, it has really made some of the inequities of our world a lot more obvious. I think so, at least. The separation between the haves and the have-nots has been made painfully clear. Now, people with white-collar jobs were able to hunker down in their homes to avoid exposure, while individuals, and typically it was minority groups, or who were called essential workers, had to survive by delivering food and soap and toilet paper and whatever. In Zambia, where we as a church support a local community there called Susu, uh, it's through our partnership with Hands at Work, I recently came out less than 0.4% of the population has been vaccinated. It's over 3,000 cases are coming up every single day. COVAX, they're not slated to bring vaccines to that country until at the earliest, the fall. The injustice and the inequity between the haves and the have-nots, especially if you're one of the have-nots, it would make finding that kind of contentment, at least in my mind, challenging at best, impossible at worst. But as hard as it is for my mind to comprehend, fully comprehend this, Paul is explaining that the contentment of Christ, the joy of Jesus, the peace of God, this is available to the beloved children of God in good times and in bad, in, in times of plenty and in times of want, in moments of passion and in moments of pain. And the secret to this type of contentment is found in the next verse where it simply says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was in Morocco one year uh, with my wife, and I remember having a conversation with a local person um, about life in America. And, and, and the fascinating, fascinating thing about that conversation is he just assumed everyone in America was a Christian. And as he told me, it's like everyone in Morocco, we're Muslim. You know, they might not be good Muslims, but we're all Muslim is what he told me. And I, I tried to explain to him, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. You, you can, if you want to learn about Jesus and be a Christian, you can. And he's like, ah, he wasn't interested. Anyway, but 
the thing that really caught my attention was this assumption of all Americans being Christians. And I, and I thought about it, and I think part of the reason for that assumption, and not to get too political, is apart from the inappropriate appropriation of religion into politics, which I'm not a big fan of, but I think it's because adages from Scripture, like, They've been taken out of context and made part of American culture. You know, there's one in Romans 8.28 that says, all things work together for good. And typically that's where many Americans just stop remembering the rest of it because it's nice. It's something that folks can lean on. They can depend on, you know, because it says everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to work out. But if you actually look at the full passage... It puts a condition at the end of that statement. It says, we know all things work together for good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But American culture forgets the second half and just accepts that first half, and it's made it part of our day-to-day. This verse today is one of those types of verses. I think I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me is, is, is something that folks will recall when they're about to take a test or have a hard day at work or whatever. You, you, you see sports figures and athletes, they quote this. Because essentially what they are thinking it means is, I'm going to win because I got Jesus on my side. There was a cartoon I remember seeing a long time ago. It was of a priest. He was praying for a football team. I think it was probably Notre Dame. And his prayer was this, God, help us annihilate the other team because we can do all things through you. Strengthen me. We are going to win because Jesus is on our side. People think this verse is about winning. This verse has been twisted and taken out of context. But if we consider the context of that, this passage, this passage is the secret that will allow the beloved of God because of Christ alone to find contentment in the face of good and bad. It's not a promise to win. It's a promise to be okay when I lose. It's a covenant promise that God is making with us to provide us the strength through the work of Jesus Christ by the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be content through all things, to find peace in plenty and in want, to find joy in abundance and in need. And I know that this idea of learning to be content whether things are going well or going poorly is great in theory, but is it practical? Is it something that we can together truly live out in our day-to-day? Because, you know, when your stomach is growling or when the unemployment check is about to run out, when, when you haven't been able to come to church for whatever reason to gather with your sisters and your brothers to be encouraged, when life sucks, it's hard to be content. Paul acknowledges this himself. He says it in verse 14. He says, hey, thanks for for sharing in my trouble. He says, thanks for being a part of my hardship. Here I am, Paul's thinking, sitting in prison. prison. My life is on the line. I'm probably going to be executed. Thanks for being an encouragement to me as I deal with the hurdles and the troubles being thrown at me and in my path. See, the secret to his level that this level of contentment, this level of Jesus' joy is a realization by Paul and a reliance on the sovereignty of God. It's being able to say, I can do all things. I can face the good and the bad with Jesus by my side. 
It's being able to say all things will work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called his beloved children. See, Jesus does not promise that the race is going to be easy. If anything, he promises that it's going to be hard, difficult. But what he does promise is that he's going to be there with us through it. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up. Now, this is, uh, I'll tell you, this is the first time I've ever had to do uh, an entire sermon series by myself. Um, and if you've been paying attention, if you've stuck it out for the last few months, um, I will tell you, I am not the most learned person. I'm not the most eloquent of speakers, and I'm not trying to be disparaging. I'm okay with that. I'm totally fine. But the time that I've been able to spend preparing to share truth with you, the truth that God has shown me through this letter, has been glorious. So I'm actually really grateful, and I thank you. Thank you for allowing me to lead you through this journey in the epistle of joy, this letter to the Philippians. Because Philippians is intended to be a reminder that we can find joy in the midst of pain. It is a reminder that we can be content in Christ if we live for Christ. It is a reminder that our journey to joy is traveled together as a body of God's beloved who are unified in our diversity because together we can seek to consider each other more significant so that we can grow in our faith, grow in our relationship to the most significant. So I hope that we can continue to travel this journey together as a, as a family to find our contentment in Christ because we can have faith in the knowledge that our sovereign God is in control of everything, good and bad. We can have joy in Jesus because we know that our God is going to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. So I proclaim this to our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever.